Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the news section. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm your host, Dr. Jack West. Joining me on this episode are Dr. Corinne Favor-Finn and Dr. Walter J. Curran, Jr. to talk about their participation in IASLC webinars that focused on radiation oncology and COVID-19. Dr. Corinne Favor-Finn is a professor of thoracic radiation oncology and honorary consultant clinical oncologist at the Christie National Health Service Foundation Trust in the United Kingdom. Dr. Walter J. Curran, Jr. is the Executive Director of the Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University and the Lawrence W. Davis Professor and Chairman of the Emory Department of Radiation Oncology. Welcome to both of you. Hi, Jack. Let's just start with the initial question of some of the educational work that you both have done to help the radiation oncology community understand some new best practices, changes that uh, might be appropriate in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Can I start with you, Corinne? Absolutely, Jack. So I chaired uh, an ISLC webinar on the astro-estro practice recommendation for lung cancer radiotherapy during this pandemic on the 20th of April. And we had two presenters on the webinar, Dr. Palmer from Canada and Dr. Guckenberger from Switzerland, who led this recommendation. Uh, So perhaps what I should do is to tell you a little bit more about the recommendation, which involved 32 experts from Estro and Astro, all working obviously in the field of lung cancer radiotherapy. And we were asked to contribute to a, a consensus process that used a modified Delphi process for and maybe some of you are not familiar with this process, it essentially uses a system of key questions and voting rounds. So what we did is that we addressed potential adaptation of radiotherapy in two distinct pandemic scenarios. The first one is the early pandemic scenario. So this is risk mitigation, and it's characterized by an altered risk-benefit ratio for lung cancer patients who are treated with radiotherapy due to an increased risk of developing severe COVID-19 infection. And the two very important aims during such scenarios, so we want to minimize patients' hospital attendance, but also, and importantly, reduce exposure of the radiotherapy staff. And then the second scenario we addressed is the later pandemic scenario, and it is uh, characterized by reduced radiotherapy resources, for example, due to sickness, home quarantine uh, of staff, or redistribution of resources. So the main question that we addressed in this recommendation is whether we should adapt our radiotherapy practice beyond current guidelines during the pandemic. And we had six common lung cancer cases for both scenarios, so ranging all the way from stage one to locally advanced non-small cell lung cancer, limited stage small cell, including discussion about PCI and palliative thoracic radiotherapy for stage four non-small cell lung cancer. And then we addressed a number of questions. I'm not going to tell you 
all of them in detail, but for example, should we postpone or interrupt the initiation of radiotherapy in a COVID-19 positive patient? And if so, what factors influence the decision-making process? During the early pandemic scenario, we discussed how we recommend postponing the initiation of treatment by four to six weeks, um, and whether we would recommend hypofractionation, so a smaller number of fractions compared to standard of care beyond our usual fractionation. And then during the late pandemic scenario, we talked about the maximum hypofractionation that would be considered to be appropriate and the priorities within various departments in terms of the lung cancer patients uh, versus other disease sites and whatever factors that we would use for triaging the, uh, the patients. So that's in a, a nutshell what we did in this exercise. And I have two main sort of takeaway message from this. So the first one is a very positive message. I think it was, uh, you know, I was really pleased to see how our international lung cancer radiation oncology community was able to rally their energy very rapidly and work very effectively to come up with this important recommendation. It was a, a very, very speedy process. Obviously, there was, you know, we were in an urgent situation. We were given 24 hours to complete each round, and successive rounds started 24 hours after the closure of the previous one. So we were invited to join the process on the 22nd of March, and the paper was published online in the Green Journal on the 1st of April, so just over a week later. And it's certainly the first time I've experienced such speed, and I hope it's not the last time. And then my second takeaway message is that in some cases, it was a good agreement regarding the management of patients, but in other cases, not. So to give you some examples very briefly, you know, the question, should we postpone radiotherapy in COVID-19 positive patients until the patients become asymptomatic or the test is negative? There was consensus or very strong consensus for all of the cases. But on the other hand, there was no consensus with regards to interruption as opposed to postponement of radiotherapy in these patients. And then finally, in a patient with stage three non-small cell lung cancer to the question, do we recommend postponing chemoradiotherapy by four to six weeks? The answer was no. 96% of the experts said no. But when we were asked whether we would recommend hypofractionation beyond our usual fractionation, there was no agreement. Only 46% said yes. So uh, that's it for me, Jack. It's very frustrating and challenging because really so much of this is based more on conjecture and best judgment than strong data. I mean, we are facing an unprecedented new situation and having to infer best approaches. Wally, can you talk about some of your impressions of this whole process and any other conclusions that you felt? Sure. Thanks, Jack. And uh, Corinne, thank you for that great summary. Uh, two of my faculty members here at Emory, uh, Jeff Bradley and Kristen Higgins, were participants in this. So I, I would agree with Corinne. It's extraordinary to put together a consensus uh, document so quickly and to get it published so quickly was even more important. What I took away from that document more than anything else is that while there's some flexibility 
when we're dealing with such an extraordinary challenge as the COVID pandemic in the care of lung cancer patients, there's far less flexibility than there is in the radiotherapeutic care of patients with other malignancies. Patients, men with early stage prostate cancer, women with early stage breast cancer, other problems, uh, there were national and international consensus as to the opportunity to protect uh, both staff and patients from unnecessary exposure and delay their care weeks and sometimes even months. Uh, none of the recommendations on the lung cancer radiotherapy guidelines suggested that. Uh, there was some discussion on some weeks of delay on uh, stereotactic radiosurgery for very small early stage T1 lesions, but the majority of patients who are involved with radiotherapeutic care of uh, lung cancer patients, the variation from standard of care uh, to COVID care were really uh, small uh, nuances in hypofractionation if chemotherapy was given concurrently. If chemotherapy was not given concurrently, uh, there was much more openness to hypo uh, fractionation, meaning smaller number of visits to the center. When we faced the pandemic crisis here in Atlanta, we took the point of view that the great majority of patients receiving radiotherapeutic care at that moment, which is well over 300 across our Winship Cancer Institute centers, should complete therapy. We look for opportunities to accelerate the completion and uh, have fewer visits. A case-by-case -case decision was made on all patients who are in the queue to receive treatment, but the majority of people with bulky lung carcinomas, those who were receiving concurrent chemoradiation, those who had symptoms that required palliation, came in for therapy uh, on a fairly efficient basis. And despite the fact that Atlanta has, you know, suffered uh, COVID fatalities, and we at one point had almost 300 COVID-positive patients in our uh, Emory hospitals hospitalized. We were able to uh, treat the majority of the patients that needed care with lung cancer or other malignancies without delay and without extraordinary risk to uh, either the patients or the staff. So it really was an extraordinary team who made available personal protective equipment and took advantage of what we were learning as we move forward. Uh, Wally, you've already alluded to the, the impact on practice where you're working, which is quite significant. Uh, Corinne, how has it been where you are? Is, has it been more uh, you know, a concern, a looming threat, or has it been a true practical challenge with high volumes and and a very real tangible impact on practice where you actually work. So I work in Manchester in the northwest of the UK and although we've had quite a significant number of COVID positive patients in the region, we've tried to keep our cancer center as COVID free as possible. So we've had now something like a 90 patients tested positive and less than 10 deaths within our cancer patients. But in order to keep the hospital as COVID-3 as 
possible, we have put in place very stringent measures with regards to remote monitoring of patients. So all of the follow-up appointments pretty much are done by telephone or video consultations. We are still seeing the majority of the new patients in the hospital. Up to about two or three weeks ago, the number of patients receiving systemic treatment had dropped considerably. And with regards to radiotherapy, where we could, we have actually implemented reduced fractionation. So we looked, actually, we did a a big exercise in the UK, uh, which has just been published in clinical oncology uh, for the lung cancer patients, to review the evidence supporting reduced fractionation to reduce the number of hospital attendances. So, for example, we've looked at ways of reducing the number of of fractions patients treated with early stage disease receive when they have SABRE, done the same for locally advanced disease, uh, both non-small cell and small cell, uh, very successfully. But we've always applied treatment that is supported by the existing literature. I'm interested in whether patients where you are changing their behaviors, are they reluctant to come in or are they prioritizing the lung cancer they have over the threat of uh, coronavirus? So, Wally, why don't you speak to this uh, first? Just I'm interested in your thoughts on on that issue of of how, how this whole issue is being perceived in Atlanta. Among our lung cancer patients here at Winship, Uh, the great majority are coming in for their care as needed. As with Corinne, some of our follow-ups and sometimes our initial contact with patients is being done via telemedicine. But uh, these people need uh, face-to-face care. They need to be evaluated for systemic therapies, surgical procedures, radiation oncology approaches. And uh, we have not had a problem getting them in. We do uh, have a dramatic reduction over the past two months in the number of patients uh, without a diagnosis of cancer coming in for screening, including lung cancer screening and other types of cancer screening. And for more of the so-called indolent early stage other malignancies, we have had patients who've declined to come in for care. Corinne, how's it been for you there? Well, in the UK, generally, there's been a concern that many patients with lung cancer have been you know, quite terrified by the government's message that patients with cancer should stay at home. And, you know, that's certainly true for lung can- the lung cancer population, um, which has indeed been classified by Public Health England as extremely vulnerable due to their high risk of morbidity and mortality related to COVID-19. So what we know now is that in the UK, the number of attendances to the emergency room and also hospitals, including cancer hospital, has gone down significantly. Um, And generally, oncologists have a fear that some of our cancer patients are sitting at home with new symptoms, and some of them may be too worried to contact the treating team to seek medical advice. I think the government was quite slow at sort of giving some uh, subsequent advice about the importance of seeking medical care. So unfortunately, we'll only find out about the impact of all of this, uh, you know, in the weeks and months to come. 
Trin, can you speak to anything that we've learned, uh, say, as a radiation oncology community or you personally from anecdotal reports or just general conversations with colleagues about challenges, toxicities, or potential changes in practice that should be implemented for radiation since the initial work that you did in the webinar and the consensus uh, recommendations? Because obviously that was really relatively early in the coronavirus experience, and uh, there has been a lot of cases. There's been a lot more experience since then. So have you learned more personally or from data since then? Well, we need to learn from data, and that's all in in progress at the moment. So I I mentioned before that in the UK, at the sort of end of March, early April, we started to compile the evidence from the literature on reduced fractionation in lung cancer because we wanted to reduce as much as possible the number of attendances to hospital. And in the UK, we have a long tradition of using hyperfractionated radiotherapy. So perhaps we're, li- we're less worried about it compared to other parts of the world. So that has been implemented in many hospitals around the UK. But now it's really important that we learn about the impact of all of this. So we just actually started uh, at the end of last week, a national data collection where we're going to record changes in the diagnostic pathways, but also importantly to the radiotherapy regime and also associated systemic treatment uh, during the pandemic. And we are recording data on all patients, not just for those in whom a change in management has been made, because we also want to have some kind of control group of patients in whom no change has been made. So we can understand the impact of all of this change on outcome and not just survival, but also local control and severe toxicity. So that is ongoing and we're just learning from that. Wally, do you have any perceptions, uh, new conclusions that you've gleaned from either direct experience conversations with colleagues or the still very early emerging literature on these interactions between radiation and coronavirus? The only comment I could make is we've we've treated a handful of patients who had cancer uh, and coronavirus here in our center, and uh, there were no unusual reactions. We took all the appropriate infectious control processes. Uh, it is a matter of public record, Jack, that we have an active uh, clinical trial here at Emory in which uh, Patients uh, with COVID-19 pneumonia without cancer in the ICU are being enrolled on a single-arm early-phase trial, receiving uh, a single dose of whole lung radiation as a therapeutic uh, approach to their COVID pneumonia. These are all patients who are not uh, receiving mechanical ventilation, but have some level of respiratory failure typically on four to six liters of oxygen and have a uh, chest imaging showing significant changes consistent with uh, respiratory compromise for COVID. So to date, we've treated eight such patients. And to our knowledge, they're the first patients uh, treated in the world with COVID pneumonia uh, with radiation, thoracic radiation. 
Uh, can't really report on the results, but uh, we will complete this cohort uh, with 10 patients. There is quite a bit of interest in the uh, infectious disease and radiotherapeutic community in this approach and uh, some proposals for randomized trials, and we will report uh, our results uh, as early as possible on this. That's great. Both of you are leaders at your institutions as well as in the broader national and and even beyond that communities for radiation oncology. And, And I'd like to get your thoughts, starting with you, Wally, on just how both the Emory system and perhaps even the, to the extent you can speak on it, on the broader American radiation oncology community is coping with COVID-19 and, and the, the threats. Obviously, there's challenges just with getting patients in, getting treatments done in the physical space and the equipment. How is that working? How do you think that healthcare systems that you're part of are, are dealing with this? You know, at Emory, we have, you know, some really uh, world-famous uh, infectious disease processes uh, where the main center that dealt with Ebola virus a few years ago. Sanjay Gupta is a member of our faculty and Carlos Del Rio and other of our infectious disease specialists are on CNN and other networks every day setting some national policies on how to approach it. So we've really, I think, had exceptional leadership here and mature and experienced leadership in dealing with infectious disease. We have CDC uh, on our same street. So I I feel like the leadership of the health system, I'm on a call once or twice a day with healthcare leadership, thinking about policies and approaches because they're ever evolving in terms of either becoming more or less stringent or uh, more or less open to new approaches. We kept the ambulatory part of our cancer program open every day throughout uh, this pandemic, even at the height of the pandemic. Uh, we were probably treating uh, in our infusion center and radiation oncology a number comparable at 70% of our usual volume. And our uh, staff, our uh, physicians and others were coming in. We were staggering shifts, shifts to reduce exposure. But our experience also was among the people we saw actually uh, uh, testing positively or becoming symptomatic from COVID-19, the great majority of those were in the community and not in the hospital or ambulatory workspace. I think we and everyone else have demonstrated that it is possible to provide, whether it's radiation oncology, infusion therapy, imaging, uh, in a safe environment for patients. But for patients without life-threatening problems, for patients without the diagnosis, such as lung cancer, uh, there's, there's a large number of individuals who understandably want to avoid medical centers at this point. And uh, we respect that, but we also know there's, there's really uh, a need for them, many of them to come in for medical care. And, but we've also learned that telemedicine in selected circumstances is a viable opportunity for some of them. That's great. And Corinne, how about in Manchester more broadly in the UK? 
I think, you know, as, as, as Wally said, we've learned very quickly about how we should create a safe environment for our patients and, you know, continue to treat patients, which I think is, you know, absolutely crucial. So during this extraordinary time, we've learned about the importance of the rapid reorganization of working procedures and our protocols in radiotherapy departments and you know, which need to be clearly flexible to adapt to the changes and unknowns of the, the pandemic. So, for example, the systematic screening and testing of patients and staff, which was quite slow to uh, start, but uh, it, it is now becoming a reality. You know, the, the need for clear protocols on the decisions to delay or interrupt radiotherapy in case of COVID-19 suspicion. You know, having protocols for reduced fractionation, as I discussed before, if appropriate. And then we also changed the way the you know the, the way that the teams uh, within our institution are communicating. So, for example, replacing face-to-face -face meeting with virtual meetings. We've had a lot of various forums on social media um, that the teams have used for rapid discussion of complex cases. So it's been you know, very, very interesting time with uh, you know, very rapid changes happening in the space of you know, less than a month, essentially. When we think about the future, it's hard for me to envision things going back in any V-shaped curve to what was normal in late 2019 or early 2020, before our concerns about coronavirus and the explosion of, of cases. Even if we manage with physical distancing and, and other practices to uh, keep a lid on things from, you know, keeping it from becoming more and more exponential, this is going to continue to be a, a looming concern for many months and potentially a year or more into the future. Can I get your thoughts, uh, maybe starting with you, Corinne, on, on what you think might be some of the enduring impacts or limitations in terms of will telehealth be widely used where you are? Will we have large meetings or will Zoom become our new large meeting mm -hmm. site? What do you think is going to be sustained? What do you think is going to continue to be a challenge? And particularly also in radiation, which practices might be the, the winners or losers in this? Will BID mm. fractionation be feasible in this world, even with strong data? Yeah, absolutely, Jack. I think there's some, some aspects of what we used to do in terms of our standard practice that unfortunately, at least for a period of time, will not be possible. And I fear, despite having myself led on a clinical trial uh, to demonstrate the benefit of twice daily radiotherapy that you know certainly that is not going to be feasible in the foreseeable future but you know what has been quite extraordinary for me is the fact that we've been able to implement change in clinical practice much quicker than we normally do and we've been able to set up projects you know such as the one I mentioned about you know, national data collection of changes in radiotherapy for lung cancer patients in the UK really quickly, you know, in a matter of weeks rather than a matter of months or even years sometimes. Uh, we've been able to fast track all sorts of COVID-related projects. 
And can we learn from these processes and perhaps apply this to our routine practice and also to the field of research, which certainly in Europe and I'm sure in the US has been hampered in recent years by complex and bureaucratic processes. So I think we've realized all sorts of things, but also, as you as you mentioned, the um, importance and relevance of remote monitoring of, of patients, which is absolutely feasible with telephone and video consultation. You know, this can be a great advantage for some patients who sometimes come from a, a very long distance to visit the cancer center. And certainly in my institution, the pandemic has accelerated changes in follow-up management uh, during this pandemic, including the integration of electronic patient reported outcomes, which you know was prior to the pandemic, you know, some people were a bit skeptical about the value of doing this, but now we are following up patients with uh, phone consultations. People realize that actually knowing the symptoms of patients prior to phoning them is actually a, a massive advantage. So I just hope that all of this is here to stay. And then for me, also importantly, I think you know one of the aspects that um, hopefully will change for, for good is the public support of the health service providers, certainly in the UK, which I hope is here to stay. And people have realized the importance of all levels of staff during this pandemic, you know, nurses, cleaners, porters, radiographers, doctors. And that's been a very, very positive indeed. Thanks. Wally, what do you think are some of the more enduring good and unfavorable effects of this practice pattern in radiation oncology practice? So I'll kind of uh, expand that question a little bit into clinical research. So at least in North America, many uh, thoracic radiation oncologists are quite involved with energy oncology as one of the NCI-sponsored research groups, along with SWOG or ecog Akron or Alliance. And a couple of years ago, a lot of the staff at least that does the lung cancer research work and statisticians for the overall energy group started to move to uh, work remotely rather than uh, in person in a Philadelphia office. And I had inherent uh, old man skepticism about that being a good work mode, but I was strongly disproven well before the COVID uh, crisis that uh, remote work and protocol development statistical design, interacting with principal investigators, following uh, toxicity, monitoring, enrollment, writing grants. For this team, worked very well in a remote capacity. So that one advantage of having that in place was uh, trial development, trial monitoring, publications never skipped a beat, at least in energy oncology during COVID. Work for those people was business as usual. Now on the enrollment side, there were many centers, at least in North America, that halted enrollment altogether because of all the conflicting needs for personnel, personal protective equipment, and so forth. We were able to maintain therapeutic enrollment here at Winship at about 50% of the usual level for uh, late March and April and early May we hope to get up to maybe 70% over the next few months. But what that tells you is preparation of a new approach to work unrelated to COVID allowed us to 
deal with a pandemic better. So again, taking advantage of some new work approaches, as Corinne discussed, really will probably put us in position to deal with lots of realities of, of this new world. Well, that's great. Thank you. Dr. Corinne Favor-Finn and Dr. Walter J. Curran, Jr., thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk to me on this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. And thank you both for all you do for your patients, uh, for the field, for the expansion of our understanding through research uh, in radiation oncology and thoracic oncology. It's great talking to you both. Thank you, Jack. Take care, now. Thank you. Bye, Jack. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more Lung Cancer Considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues.